You have a gut instinct or butterflies in your stomach, and you usually pay attention to them. But how much do you really notice how well your gut is doing? The wellness of your digestive system has a huge impact on your overall health, from how you think and feel to the health of your heart, brain, skin, joints, and so much more. And there are many good ways to take care of it, but there's also lots of mistakes to avoid. We're gonna share with you the realities of digestive health today and learn more about the whole microbiome and how to take care of it. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. And this is Be Healthistic. Welcome to Be Healthistic, the podcast that is more than just health and wellness information. It's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family. Health isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. Everyone has their own needs to be healthistic. This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of Drs. Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. They'll share with you the best that traditional and modern medicine has to offer, so that you could be more productive and more proactive in managing your overall health. Be Healthistic is powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts. Hi, folks. Before we launch into our discussion today, I wanted to encourage you to be a proactive member of our Be Healthistic community. If you like what you hear today and you want to listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Also, check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will feature video versions of our episodes, plus video extras you won't want to miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steven Sinatra, and other Healthy Directions experts, as well as a robust library of health and wellness content over on the Healthy Directions site. So visit HealthyDirections.com to explore our database of well-researched content and information. And of course, you can always follow us on our social media channels. So Drew, it seems more and more today that GI issues are on the rise. Why is that? Well, I think it partly has to do with our environment and how dirty our environment is with toxins and chemicals and such like that. And really, it's a matter of our lifestyle that we live. I think people are living this very busy, modern lifestyle that is uh, encouraging them to be stressed out all the time. I mean, really, like we're all into this enormous amount of stress. and We know that stress can affect the microbiome. Uh, it's also the foods that we eat. They're not really clean anymore. They're not really real foods. A lot of people are eating processed sugary foods and the wrong fats. So there's lots of different factors that go into this and also medications that you know patients are taking. So a new study came out of Germany showed that 25% of medications affect the microbiome, right? It's not just antibiotics or corticosteroids or proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers. We have a whole subset, 25% of medications can affect the microbiome. So there's lots of different insults, I guess we can say, or assaults that are happening on the microbiome. And it really has an accumulative effect. So what actually is the microbiome? I mean, can you, can you define it? Yeah, the microbiome, you know, there's different microbiomes in our body. So we've got, you know, the gut microbiome, which, uh, you know, primarily is a composition of bacteria and yeast. There's even viruses. There's protozoa. There's other microorganisms that uh, inhabit, you know, starting off in your mouth. That's really where the microbiome of the, the gut starts is in your mouth. It goes all the way down your esophagus. The stomach has its own unique microbiome. The large intestine is really where a lot of these probiotics that people consume or, you know, probiotics that are in foods, like fermented foods, 
that's where a lot of these organisms inhabit. So when you think about the large, the large intestine or the colon, that's where we have trillions of these organisms living. I mean, the trillions, imagine that, right? They say that there's actually 10 times more bacteria and organisms living in our gut than there are human cells. So that begs the question, are we more bacteria or are we more human? Sounds like we're more bacteria. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, there's, I mentioned microbiomes in the other parts of the body. There's a skin microbiome. There's a microbiome of your scalp. There's a microbiome of your eyes, right? Women have a microbiome of their vagina. There's all sorts of different microbiomes in the, in the body. And I, I focus primarily on the gut microbiome. You know, it's interesting to say that because I've read a lot of information about cesarean section in women you know, where the child doesn't pass down the birth canal. Can you say something about that as a natural path? Especially, I mean, your wife's really involved in, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know, reproductive situations as well with women. Yeah, well, they say actually that the exposure to microbes really happens in the womb. Yeah. And when the baby passes through the birth canal, if they do have a vaginal birth, there's um, uh, an exposure that happens to different microbes, which is really good. You want to have this exposure to mom's microbes through the canal. Uh, if you have a C-section, you're not really going to get that exposure. And unfortunately, if you're having a C-section in a hospital, which is happening all the time, you're going to be exposed to microbes that maybe you don't really want to be exposed to. Now, there's lots of controversy out there. Some docs, some OBGYNs are actually doing a swab of mom's vagina and kind of passing that along the baby once they do have a C-section. But uh, that is not without risk. So we need to have more research on that before we start recommending that to uh, people. But we know, though, that babies that do have vaginal birth compared to C-section, they do have lower rates of certain conditions later on in life. Do they have more immune support? I believe that they do. If you look at the research, what happens with a vaginal birth is they have the exposure to these microbes, and the exposure is good because it promotes immune tolerance. I think of the immune system as like the heart. It needs to be exercised. You gotta have exercise for the cardiovascular system. You gotta have exercise for the immune system as well. And that first moment when a baby's born, travels through the birth canal, that exposure is beginning the, the time at which the immune system is developing. So it sounds like inflammation in any of its evil forms can present itself and basically if you can improve the immunity of the neonate going through, I mean, that's, that's key right now. And you know what's even cooler is if you look previous to this. So let's say uh, you've got a, a pregnant mom. But if a mom's living on a farm, the more animals that she's exposed to during her pregnancy, the child that she gives birth to is going to have fewer asthma, allergies, oh, and that's disease, including eczema. Now, what is that all about, right? These animals, right, are covered in dirt, they're covered right. in mud, they're, they're walking through the woods, whatever it is. I mean, they're exposed to all sorts of microbes. And then the pregnant mom is exposed to these microbes, which then builds immune tolerance for the baby. Hey, Drew, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I'm thinking about in my days as a cardiologist, and I treated farmers, you know, in Connecticut. When I look back on it, and I look at some of their, you know, cardiovascular inflammatory risk factors, they were pretty low. I mean, that's interesting. You just gave me something to think about. That is an amazing situation where if you're walking around all this stuff, these, quote, germs, it's doing something for our immune system. It's one of the best supports for the immune system. Mm. So anyway, I just want to get back to the heart for a second because, uh, you know, that's my specialty. You know, this whole microbiome and this whole situation about probiotics is really amazing. Remember the paper we submitted for publication about probiotics lowering triglycerides? You know, when it comes to triglycerides in the heart, there's, there's very few things that lower triglycerides. You, you know, weight reduction will do it, a, non, a lower carbohydrate diet will do it. But when I came across probiotics lowering triglycerides, this is a 
this is an eye-opener. Well, who would have thought, right? I mean, how can probiotics affect cholesterol and therefore affect heart? I mean, it's pretty remarkable that this can happen. Well, you said it, the gut talks to the brain, and now the gut's talking to the heart. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of connections in the body. So what we know is that there's this, there's this gut-brain axis, gut-brain connection. There's a gut-heart connection. There's a gut-skin connection. There's a connection with the joints. I mean, you can go on and on and on. And I first realized this early in practice when I would take patients off of gluten or dairy, right? We talked about these foods being problematic for a lot of people. And what I found was, let's say if someone came in and they're having lots of bloating and they're having brain fog, they're having some joint pain and uh, their memory isn't that great, what I would do is take them off gluten. And what I'd see when they come back three weeks later, they say, doc, my bloating's so much better, but my joint pain went away and my, I don't have any brain fog anymore and my memory's clear. What, what the heck's going on here? So that, that made me believe that, hey, the foods we're consuming can certainly have an effect on your gut, but also have an effect systemically in your body. And that was, that was profound to me. So the gut affects the heart and the brain as well. It does. And what we know about the heart is that uh, there's only one study I read about this, but we do know that there's a condition called dysbiosis. Okay? And dysbiosis is really an imbalance of gut flora. And what we know is that there actually is a higher incidence of dysbiosis in certain cardiovascular disease conditions like heart failure or uh, coronary artery disease or kidney failure or even diabetes. So there is a, there is a gut-heart connection, and I think that anyone listening to this that uh, wants to have a, you know, a say in prevention of cardiovascular disease, make sure your gut's in working order. So a key takeaway for the listener right now is to be mindful of their gut. In other words, how can I improve my gut health? Yes. And, and I mean, you know, we'll get into really what we can do about gut health. Why don't we first start off by talking about what could be bad for the gut, okay? Sure. Now, we mentioned there's certain medications, you know, there's 25% of medications out there that can affect your gut. So let's say antibiotics. That's the first one that people think of that really harms the gut. And it certainly does because, you know, we've all taken antibiotics in our life and these are life-saving medications and I prescribe them to my patients, but they, they are used uh, too much, I believe. Right. I believe they're right. just given out too quickly, especially for, you know, certain ear infections when children children are actually suffering from a viral condition, not even a bacterial infection. Antibiotics are really indiscriminate killers of bacteria in the body. They're going to kill off the bad guys, but they're also going to kill off the good guys right. too. So that gut microbiome that we were just talking about is going to be affected when you take an antibiotic. Now, another interesting piece that I found, actually, I read a, an article, I think it was back in May 2019. Researchers looked at 72 rivers across the world, okay? And what they found was that I think it was over 65% of these rivers had antibiotic residues in them. So it's not just, okay, you take an antibiotic and your, your gut microbiome is a little disturbed, but really it's like even the water we're drinking sometimes may have trace residues of antibiotics in it. And that's, that's concerning to me. And also the, the, the foods we eat, right? What about conventional meats where these animals are pumped up with antibiotics? Is there residue that's being passed down from that meat into our bodies? So there's this constant onslaught that's happening to the microbiome where antibiotics and other substances are, are, are affecting it. And even in something as simple as washing your hands with an antibacterial substance. I mean, you walk into any hospital, any sort of even grocery store these days, and there's a little dispenser out there that might have an antibacterial sanitizer there. And I think that's just too, that's too much. You know, I think there's, there's, there's this fear of germs in our, in our society and really... We got we to gotta rein that back in. We got we to tame down that fear because we need to have regular exposures to bacteria. And there comes a time and a place for antibiotics, but really they're overused. Yeah, you're making a good point. I mean, there is antibiotic resistance going on. In fact, when people are admitted to hospitals and they get a, a staph coagulase, you know, antibiotic resistance 
you know, staphylococcal. It's it's very very serious. There's an antibiotic strain that has the Klebsiella strain coming out of China has some antibiotic resistance as well. And this is something that's on my radar. And you know, if this comes across to uh, America. You know, one of the antidotes uh, is mushroom extracts, you know, the shiitake, mataki uh, mushrooms. So if any of our listeners develop a, a bizarre respiratory illness and the doctor can't diagnose it, uh, I think one of the considerations would be uh, a mushroom complex. That's a great point. And, you know, antibiotics are not all created equal either. I mean, there's certain antibiotics like take amoxicillin, right? It's a pretty gentle antibiotic on the gut microbiome. So if you take it, there's going to be a change, but there's not going to be a major change. But let's say you're developing pyelonephritis or kidney infection. You've got severe pneumonia, right? You need a little bit of a higher tier antibiotic like Cipro, right, which is a fluoroquinolone. If you take that, your gut's going to be affected for, we know, at least 12 months, okay? So you may not even return to where you were before because there's been such damage done to the microbiome from using the antibiotic. So if there's any physicians listening to this, you know, be really selective with your antibiotics. Try to start with more gentler ones if possible, and then move on to the broad spectrum ones um, if, you know, if really needed. Because I do want to reiterate that the antibiotics are, are absolutely necessary. They're just, in my opinion, sometimes overly prescribed. I think the pearl for our listeners is when possible, when possible, try to support your immune system without an antibiotic. Correct. But again, you need to talk to your doctor, but maybe through active communication and conversations, you can support the immune system in an alternative way as opposed to a conventional way. You know, because like you said, Dad, I mean, antibiotic resistance is growing, and uh, I'm not sure if anyone's really talking about this, but it's going to be a major problem oh, yeah. in the next no. 10, 20, 30 oh, no. years. I mean, major problem. And I'm finding sometimes if people come in with an infection, I give them something, let's say, you know, if I have to get them Cipro, sometimes it's not even working today, and it's scary. So there's, there's some antibiotics out there that we're finding that aren't working anymore, and what's going to happen when the resistance builds even more? Our theme here, Drew, is being productive without being self-destructive. We want to make sure an antibiotic doesn't create self-destruction, you know, for our listeners at the same time. Exactly. So anyway, on this microbiome, I mean, can you, like, give a, a definition of it that is germane to our listeners? You know, what we know is that these little bugs in our gut are doing so many different things. They're actually synthesizing vitamins. So vitamin oh, yeah. K, oh, yeah. right? B12, right. synthesized right. in the gut. These microflora that inhabit your gut are also helping digest your foods. You know, you need them for that purpose. They're helping support the integrity of the intestinal lining. And, you know, they're also acting as antipathogenic agents, so to speak. So they're protecting us against the bad bacteria that we're exposed through, you know, in our environment and the foods we're consuming. And it's, it's amazing, though. I mean, the genetic potential and the genetic capabilities and such is, is huge, like you said. And, you know, I think right now, I mean, we're really at the tip of the iceberg for learning about the gut microbiome and how it influences the rest of the body. I mean, we have a lot to learn. So, Drew, what does it mean to be regular? In other words, how often should I really be going to the bathroom? Uh, this, is a, this is a question I have to, you know, debate over sometimes with, with patients. I think that uh, one bowel movement to three bowel movements a day is considered normal. So when a patient comes in and they tell me, I have not pooped in two, three, four days, but that's normal for me. So that, that's okay, right? I said, no, 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 that's not okay. You, you, you need to be going to the bathroom every single day, at least once, once a day. And there's many different causes for why people have constipation. Um, and some people have loose stools, too. I mean, you, you got to really address both here. But I do feel that one to three bowel movements a day is the best. You know, as a heart specialist, I looked at this actually years ago. I mean, the average American 
takes in about 12 to 15 grams of fiber a day. We need, we need to take in at least 40 grams of fiber a day to really have, you know, good bowel cleansing. So uh, as a natural path, I'm sure you talk to your patients about getting adequate fiber. Yeah, and it, it always starts with diet, right? It always starts with increasing the fruit and vegetable intake. And if they can handle grains, we'll add on some grains. And there's certain fibers that people could take in supplement form, whether that is a ground up flax seeds or if they want to take ground, you know, psyllium husks or a ground up chia seeds. These, these can all help with um, constipation or, or loose stools. And another, another thing that people forget to do is drink enough water. Hydration, and hydration affects the body in many different ways, but it certainly affects the bowels. So let me ask you, um, how do you talk to your patients about your gut's connection to whole body health? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you know, a lot of people are coming in with digestive complaints. I mean, it's common these days. So let's talk. So about it's that. not just constipation, diarrhea, and IBS, you know, I mean. Right. It's a lot, a lot more than that. I mean, you know, there's the. Are you seeing immune system dysfunction in some of these patients as well? I think most people have immune system dysfunction, right? And there is a whole connection with the gut, which we'll get into. But yeah, you mentioned some diarrhea, you know, constipation, you know, bloating, abdominal pain, heartburn is another common GI symptom. And so when people have that, obviously, I'm focused on the gut, mm -hmm. but I'm also looking at a constellation of symptoms across the body. And I try to figure out, well, is this connected in some way? Is there headache connected to their constipation or is there joint pain connected to their bloating? And there's all sorts of tests that we can run to figure out if there's uh, you know, we talked about dysbiosis, which is an imbalance of gut flora. We can run a breath test, a simple breath test to learn and un unravel and discover if there's something called SIBO which is small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And what that is, is really a condition where there's an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. And when that happens, anytime that someone eats a carbohydrate that's going to be easily fermentable, let's say uh, Brussels sprouts or let's say asparagus, which are good foods for us, right? They may just bloat up immediately and they just feel like they're pregnant. So I have lots of, lots of women come into my practice and they say, they say Doc, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like normal in the morning. And as soon as I start eating foods, I just get bloated and bloated and bloated throughout the day. And by the end of the day, I look like I'm pregnant. And then they start telling me about, well, I'm, I'm suffering with anxiety. I've got major stress. I've developed this weird joint pain that came out of nowhere. And that's what I'm kind of thinking about. Well, the gut is likely related to what's happening systemically in their body. So the gut is not just about food. It's about stress. I mean, stress affects the gut. Uh, what about alcohol? Yeah, the, the studies show, I mean, alcohol is really not great for the microbiome, I mean, you're certainly not going to, um, you know, feed the good guys by drinking alcohol. I think alcohol in moderation is, is not going to be a problem for most people for their microbiome. But you mentioned stress, and let's go into stress a little bit. And if we're eating our food, imagine the listener right now, you're at your table, and you've got a computer in front of you, you've got your TV in front of you, and you've got the news on, and you're just shoveling food in your mouth, right? You're not focusing on the food in front of you. You're not present, mindful with that food. You're thinking about what's happening in the rest of the world, which you really don't have any influence on anyway. And that's a major stress to be having when you're eating food. So you're not in a parasympathetic rest and digest mode. You're in a sympathetic mode. Great and that's point. not going to support digestion. So eating when you're nervous, eating under fear, eating under panic, because a lot of us want to put something into our mouth. And basically, that's, it calms us down. And Dad, you know, I love what you do. Is When you and I eat a meal together, last night we had, a, we had, some, uh, we had some grass fed beef, right? We had some uh, mashed potatoes. What do we do before our meal? What do you do really quickly? What do I do before? Yeah, what did you say? Oh, you I always said a do prayer. This. You say a prayer. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I sort of bring more energy to the food, basically. In other words, I'm sort of energizing the food. I put my hands over it. 
and I'm trying to give the food a little bit of energy, and it's, and it's being sort of cognizant of the fact that the spiritual aspect of bringing our food and having food in the first place is, is very, very, you know, rewarding. Yeah, and it's bringing yourself in your body in that moment so you can enjoy that food and not be stressed out. <laughs> you know, you make a good point. So when you say a little prayer, you're taking yourself out of fight-flight. Yes. And you're putting yourself in a calming mode. Now, I'm a big advocate as a heart specialist of digestive enzymes. And you're a naturopath, and uh, again, you, this is something in your, in, you know, in your specialty that I'm, I'm sure you do every day. But I take digestive enzymes after every meal. Do you recommend this to your patients as well? Yeah, I recommend digestive enzymes to patients that are, that are having digestive issues, uh, but also for those that are uh, aging, too, because as you age, your digestive enzyme you know, level is going to go down. The amount of enzymes that your pancreas and your stomach are going to put out is going to decrease. So anyone that is having bloating or you know, abdominal issues, constipation, diarrhea, et cetera, digestive enzymes can certainly help. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean for me personally... I mean, I take them after every meal. I mean, it's like it's like brushing my teeth, you know. I mean, I brush my teeth twice a day, and I take digestive enzymes whenever I put anything into my mouth. And I'll tell you, Drew, I know it helps. I mean, I just know. I, I mean, I have less heartburn, less burping. I mean, I even have, I, I feel like I have more energy. And from the cardiovascular point of view, I've always felt, and I've written this in my books, that digestion takes an enormous amount of work. And if digestion is requiring work, it's going to pull it away from the energy of the heart. And I have had so many patients in my practice after eating a heavy meal develop angina or a heart cramp. So my patients have been my best teachers, so to speak. If you can make it easier on digestion by taking in digestive enzymes, I mean, to me, it's like uh, money in the bank. I mean, I just do it. And again, my patients taught me that because the angina was so frequent after a, a big meal without digestive enzymes because we didn't know about it back then. Yeah, I mean, it, that's the first thing to start off with is, is digestive enzymes. And, and also, you know, let's, let's teach our patients and tell them, well, hey, don't watch the news, right? Sit down, you know, be thankful for your food and chew slowly, right? If you chew your food thoroughly and slowly, you're going to secrete your, your body's own endogenous enzymes, which are going to really help facilitate that process of breaking down the foods. And of course, yes, if, if those who don't feel good after they eat a meal, they feel sluggish, they feel like they have brain fog, they're tired, digestive enzymes can definitely help. They're like, a, I think of them like a crutch, right. right? It's like you're healing, you're helping like heal the organ that's just working too much. Right. And in an aging person like myself, I mean, I, I think it's a must. I mean, I just, I just do it. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, there's a lot of foods out there that have a prebiotic support and a probiotic support. I mean, let's take sauerkraut, for example. I mean, I think sauerkraut's one of the greatest healing foods for the gut. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, sauerkraut, in many different ways, we're talking about cabbage. You know, cabbage has a sorforophane in it, right, which is going to help as, like, antioxidant, anti-cancer, et cetera, mm -hmm. liver support. And in cabbage, and when you eat it in a sauerkraut form, which is fermented, there's going to be naturally occurring probiotics in there. And that's going to help really with digestive function. So anyone that really wants to provide a natural source of probiotics into their diet, consume sauerkraut, kimchi, miso, bikavas, 
kefir, yogurt, all different sorts of foods have probiotics in them. And they also have some prebiotics, which and feed. And the prebiotics. So, so basically what a listener needs to understand that the prebiotic is food for the probiotic. Yes. So you're getting more mileage out of your probiotic by feeding them the food that they need as well. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that because really it's not just about the probiotics, right? The probiotics are going to be there. They're going to pass through if you take them in a, let's say if you take a probiotic, they're, they're going to pass through. They actually don't colonize, right. really. I mean, they, they, there might be some level of colonization that's happening, but really what they do is they exert their effects uh, in a transient manner. So as they pass through, they're having their effect. Now, you need to support the growth and viability of these probiotics by giving them prebiotics. And in a food form, you know, my favorite prebiotics are these, really. Garlic, right? Onions, uh, leeks, asparagus, you know, dandelion. These are all forms of foods that are going to help feed the good, healthy flora. Jerusalem artichoke, too, is that, that's yes, a prebiotic. Yes, a huge one. Yeah. Yep, exactly, exactly. So you can't go wrong there. So in a final analysis, then, should we all be taking probiotics as, as, as a supplement? I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, there's certain foods that we talked about that have prebiotic and probiotic value, but do we need a probiotic? The average person, the average 40-year-old person today, do we need a probiotic? Yeah, that's really a million-dollar question. <laughs> I think early in my career, I would have said no. Because I, I think I tended to believe that we could get everything from our foods, right? And I, I, I was under the belief, too, that our environment wasn't as toxic as it was. But now, knowing what I know now, going to all these conferences and the naturopathic medical school that I went to, we live in a toxic world, okay? We live in a stress-induced world. We live in a world where food supply is not as clean as we'd like it to be. And I mentioned that study about the antibiotics in the rivers. That's scary to me. Like, we could be exposed on a low level to antibiotics through our water and through our food. So knowing what I know now, I would recommend that everyone take a probiotic. And, and also, at the same time, make sure you're eating fermented foods if you tolerate them okay. Because there are a subset of the population that might be histamine intolerant, where they have sauerkraut and they actually develop itchiness or they develop brain fog or they develop fatigue. And those people really need to work on healing their gut first before they start eating more fermented foods. But general, most people can tolerate fermented foods, so I say eat those, which contain the pre and the probiotics, and then uh, take a probiotic supplement as well. You know, as a heart, as a heart specialist, you know, one of the uh, greatest risk factors is when you have a high triglyceride level and a low HDL. You know, a lot of diabetics have this. For example, I always told my patients that if you had a triglyceride to HDL ratio less than two, that was suitable. If it's around one, that's ideal. Think about that, Drew. You have a triglycerides of maybe 50 and an HDL of 50, it's one, right? Then when we researched the literature and looked at some of these probiotic strains that lower triglycerides, I mean, to me, this is a big deal. Triglycerides are a significant risk factor in coronary artery disease. And if we can lower triglycerides with certain strains of probiotics, I mean, to me, that's just, you know, putting money in the bank. So when I asked you the question, it was a rhetorical question as a 40-year-old, knowing what I know now, and after submitting that paper, uh, from the cardiovascular point of view, I think all of us should be taking uh, certain strains of probiotics. We should also get into probiotics in general, because the, the audience listening might be saying to themselves, well, I, geez, I go to the grocery store, I go to Whole Foods, and what do I see? I see a wall of probiotics there. Yeah. And they're not all created equal. Um, there's different strains out there. So there's different lactic acid forming bacteria, which is like more of the lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. A lot of people are familiar with those because they buy yogurt and they see that on the label. Uh, there's also yeast derived uh, probiotics like a Saccharomyces boulardii or a Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Uh, there's also the newer class of, of probiotics that we've been introduced to, and that's the soil based organism probiotics like bacillus. 
Some people respond better to certain types of probiotics. Some people respond better to all three. So I'm kind of in favor of more of a combination product that has all three of them because I think we're going to get more benefit by giving something like that than rather one at a time. But then again, some people, they just they didn't tend to do well with just lactobacillus. So it's really, it's really you know, person-specific or patient-specific in that sense. And also, a lot of probiotics that you'll see on the shelf, they may have been designed to contain a, a CFU or a colony-forming unit. You might see anywhere from you know, 200 million to 1 billion to 10 billion to 100 billion to even 500 billion organisms in there. And what really counts is that you find a formula that is guaranteed to have those organisms at the, at the time of expiration. You don't want to have those organisms that are, that are developed at the time of development because they may not be in there the entire time. If you buy that supplement a year later, you're not guaranteed to have that 10 billion CFU count in there. But if you buy a, a formula that's guaranteed at the time of expiration, that 10 billion units, they will be in there. So, so anyway, just to conclude here, a lot of us have children. I mean, you have young children. I mean, what do you do for your child's tummy? You know, you have a, a seven-year-old and a, f- a four-year-old, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it starts off with teaching them uh, how to eat fruits and vegetables from a young age. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> when you train them from a young age, it's a lot easier. I mean, when we have friends come over, they watch our kids eat, and they're like, I can't believe your kid's eating Brussels sprouts. Like, what, did you, what, what, is, what is going on here? And I said, well, we just started from a young age, right? Or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> asparagus or, or broccoli. I mean, our kids love greens. It's amazing. I feel blessed that they do. So it really begins with the foods and starting them off at a young age. Now, we fortunately, uh, for my youngest son, he has not had to have antibiotics. My older son did have to take antibiotics for a tooth infection that he had. So when he was taking antibiotics, we definitely had him on probiotics at the time. And occasionally we do give them probiotics here and there. And we, we give them kimchi and sauerkraut. And we have miso some mornings for breakfast. And so we're always trying to get in the, the naturally fermented you know, foods in as well as a source of probiotics. So you're teaching your kids by example. Yes. And, and you know, uh, I'm going to wear my psychotherapist hat here. One of the things I know as a, as a physician, as a psychotherapist, children will follow what you do not what you say. So if you're smoking cigarettes at home and uh, you tell your children don't smoke, but they see you smoking, guess what? They're going to pick up smoking most likely. It's sort of an energetic transformation. So the fact that you are eating the way you eat, you know, low sugars, you're taking in probiotics, prebiotics, fresh fruits and vegetables, and things like that, your children are going to follow your lead and they're going to do what mom and dad do. I think one of the greatest gifts we can give our children is following our lead uh, because it's so simple. They'll follow what you do, not what you say. You know, there's even research showing now that when you have family dinners, that is so important for the development of your child. Oh, yeah. Having regular family dinners. And we really strive to have dinner every night with the kids. We don't offer a kid's menu. Okay, we don't don't just cook them macaroni and cheese or offer them pizza. They eat what we're eating because they should be. There there shouldn't be this different diet between children and adults. But gluten-free varietals. Oh, our whole family is gluten-free. Yeah, Yeah. and sometimes we're dairy-free too, uh, depending on the season. But what I can't stand is we go to a restaurant. Let's say if we want to listen to some live music outdoors or something like that. We go there, and the first thing they do is hand our kids the uh, children's menu, food menu. And I look at it, and I'm like, this is all garbage. Mm -hmm. It's all junk. It's pizza. It's hot dogs. It's pasta. And so I say to them all the time, no, we don't need that. Trans fats. They say to me, what are your kids going to eat? I'm like, well, my kids are going to eat real food. That's what they're going to eat. They're going to eat what's on the adult menu, what we order. So for our listeners, don't take the child's menu from... uh, (laughs) The restaurant, just have your children eat what's off 
the your plate, menu. right? Yeah, right, yeah. I want your plate because, like my father said, they're going to watch you, and if and if they see you eating good food, they're going to learn to eat good food too. Right, right. Habits begin in the house. So, so Drew, um, this has been a great discussion about our gut health and our brain and heart health and everything. So. There's a lot of information we discussed. Uh, what are some takeaways that we can give our, our listeners? I mean, the first takeaway that comes to my mind is, uh, again, I, I suggest that our listeners take a probiotic, prebiotic supplement. I think uh, given what we know in this day and age, uh, I mean, for me, it's like taking coenzyme Q10. I mean, I take that every day, and, and I take a probiotic, prebiotic every day, and I eat foods with prebiotic value and, pro- and probiotic value. And I want to just reiterate again that the concept of going back to foods, right, and really eating a clean diet and right. making sure that you're removing any sort of food allergy or food sensitivity. So, you know, work with an integrative doc out there to figure out if you do have that. We talked about the stress component, right. being, and I cannot stress that enough, uh, really reducing stress in your life and making sure that you're, you're in a peaceful, calm state when you're eating, because that's when digestion begins. And of course, you know, if you, if you benefit from digestive enzymes, you take a probiotic, those are all going to be good. And if you have something going on in your gut, let's say if you've got SIBO or you've got a candida overgrowth, that needs to be addressed. Right. Okay. And typically what we do is we, you know, we give antimicrobials for that, or we might recommend an elemental diet or a low FODMAP diet uh, to really, you know, starve the bacteria there that's, so they don't grow in the small intestine. But, you know, if there is an underlying dysbiosis that's present, that definitely needs to be treated. And, um, you know, we didn't even talk about IBD at all. IBD is irritable bowel disease. That's a lot more serious than IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. And, and that's a whole other approach. We can, we can probably have a podcast just on that alone. But people do need to understand that you need to work with a doctor sometimes around matters like this, especially if you have IBD, okay? You don't just want to willy-nilly be taking, you know, really high doses of probiotics because actually actually could be harmful. If you have a level of leaky gut happening, and you're taking really high doses of probiotics, that's, that's really not recommended. I was taught in school, I did, a, I did a rotation on an HIV shift, and we were taught not to give probiotics to HIV people because their immune systems were so compromised. Yeah, right, right. Good um, point. I actually haven't uh, delved into the research in a long time looking at that, but that is on my mind. And someone that is severely immune compromised, I probably won't put them on a probiotic to start off with. I really want to help heal their gut up. Right? Let's say if they have leaky gut or if they have intestinal you know, increase intestinal permeability. That's something that I really want to address first with them, heal that up over a couple months to a six-month long period or longer, and then bring on the probiotics. So there's a, there's a time and a place for probiotics. So, so I guess our final takeaway is that our gut health not only determines our joint health and, uh, and our brain health, so to speak, and our heart health, but there's another factor in everyday life that I think we should enlighten our listeners about is that sometimes eating the, quote, wrong foods can create brain fog as well. And we've heard about this even in our own family with with your brother, for example. Yeah, exactly. And brain fog is on the rise right now. And I guess, you know, one of the pearls we can give our listeners is if you are suffering from brain fog, think about what you ate that day. Thank you for bringing that up. That's huge. And, you know, a really quick tip for our our listeners right now is um, I talked about really being present at uh, the dinner table, right? right. Being, being present with your food. What I want you to do is notice how your body's feeling before you eat and notice how your body's feeling after you eat. Do you feel anxious? Do you feel tired? Do you feel sluggish? Do you feel like your brain's not working? If that's the case, you've likely just eaten something that your body doesn't agree with. So you don't have to go out and get a fancy food allergy test, which in my opinion aren't even uh, that great. Uh, you, maybe you don't have to do a food elimination diet either, which can be challenging for people. You just 
Be present with your food, know your body, and know the response that you get. And if it's not a good response, well, maybe the corn you ate or the gluten you ate or the dairy you just had is not agreeing with you. Simple as that. And my final words would be, folks, as Drew said, and this is a big term in bioenergetic analysis, is listen to the language of the body. Before we wrap up this episode of Be Healthistic, it's time to share our wellness wisdom for today. We've been talking about the importance of gut health and how the wellness of our digestive system has a tremendous impact on our overall health, on our hearts, our brains, our skin, and our joints. Eating foods that are whole, natural, and anti-inflammatory have been shown to promote better health and wellness throughout the various systems of the body. So in keeping with our discussion today, here are some things you can do to improve your gut health. Take probiotics and eat fermented foods like fermented vegetables, kefir, kimchi, kombucha, miso, sauerkraut, tempeh. Supplement with a prebiotic fiber and eat fiber-rich foods. Eat less sugar and sweeteners, which can cause gut dysbiosis or an imbalance of gut microbes. Reduce stress. Avoid taking antibiotics unnecessarily as overuse is a significant public health concern that can lead to antibiotic resistance. Exercise regularly. Get enough sleep. Use non-toxic beauty and household cleaning products. And eat a mainly plant-based diet, choosing organic when possible. I'll also have a link available for a list of the dirty dozen foods you should avoid. Hopefully, some of these tips will help you improve your microbiome for a healthier gut and better wellness overall. Remember everyone, if you liked what you heard today and you want to be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorites and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at healthydirections.com as well as on our social media channels. Check it out. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra. And I'm Dr. Steve Sinatra. This is Be Healthistic. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic, powered by our friends at Healthy Directions with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra. See you next time.